1: Welcome to the Jason in the House podcast. I'm Jason Chaffetz. And thanks for joining us. So we got a very special guest today. Uh, we're going to talk to Jared Kushner. He wrote a book called Breaking History. He's certainly his proximity to history with Donald Trump is uh, second to none. So I look we look forward to having a conversation with him. Somebody I actually got to know when he was there uh, in the White House, but uh, glad he's going to be joining us today. We're going to highlight the stupid because, you know, there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. And uh, and then we're going to, like I said, have this discussion with Jared Kushner. But let's kick things off by talking about a few things in the news that are, I just think, noteworthy. Things that we should, uh, we should all be concerned about. So it's been more than 200 days now since Joe Biden has actually sat down for an interview. Think about that, you know. Uh, on the one hand, um, people didn't say, you know, said they didn't like the drama of, of Donald Trump and all that. But what you did give to him, what you, what you have to c- cite with him, is how open and transparent he was. Because every time you turned around, every time he went out to the helicopter, did that sort of thing, he was there and answering questions. And not just answering one or two questions, but answering them in depth. And he was sitting down with people that had been traditionally adverse to his positions and answered their questions for long periods of time. So for this president, uh, Joe Biden, uh, to not do an interview is very very much like he was when he was running for office, right? He sat in that uh, basement, didn't answer questions, didn't participate. They had to cancel a debate. Um, And I don't think it was uh, a healthy part of our process. If you're going to be... Uh, the president of the United States, with your, with your finger on the nuclear bomb, uh, you better be able to answer some questions from, uh, you know, some reporter out there. And uh, but we just haven't seen that with Joe Biden, and I think it's wrong. The other thing that's still bothering me, you know, the, there was all this news about what's going on in Marlago and Donald Trump, and and what's going on with documents. I think that's in large part a large distraction from what the Democrats are doing uh, overall. But I guess what bothers me is that somebody who served in Congress for eight and a half years was on the Judiciary Committee and the Oversight Committee, and I was the chairman of the, of the uh, Oversight Committee for a, a period there, is how different the Department of Justice was in how they dealt with documents that we were seeking in Congress sensitive documents, some of them highly classified documents, some of them uh, sensitive documents. I'm talking about documents from organizations like the IRS or the State Department or Hillary Clinton herself, who conveniently set up her own server on the very day she started her, the very same day, the very same day that she started her confirmation process to become the Secretary of State, guess what? They uh, set up a server in her home. I think, to bypass the Federal Records Act. Now, James Comey came by later and said, well, no reasonable prosecutor would go after her for that. And it, you have to look at intent, and there was no intent to bypass the Federal Records Act. Yeah, that's why they set up a server in her own home, uh, unbeknownst to the, to the uh, department. But how differently they dealt with this, because these uh, documents at the IRS at the State Department, generated by the Secretary of State, these were under subpoena. Not only were these documents not to provided to the committee for review, because those documents are generated and owned by all of us, but these people destroyed these documents. I mean, we had inspectors general from the intelligence community, the IG from uh, the, the what's called TIGDA, Uh, that goes after and looks at, at what goes on at the IRS and others that looked at this situation and found that there was highly sensitive information that was destroyed after subpoenas were issued. Did they come in with guns a and and uh, raid places to go find this? No, they didn't do any of that. In fact, in the case of the State Department, the Department of Justice issued immunity agreements. And some of those, the five immunity agreements that I'm aware of, had no requirement, no stipulation that those people who got an immunity agreement cooperate with the government. Now, why would you hand out a an immunity agreement? If there's no cooperation uh, clause in there and uh, it made no sense. And so I guess what bothers me and why so many conservatives and Republicans are concerned about this department, the current Department of Justice and its apparent political bias is how differently Lady Justice is applying what they're doing to Donald Trump with how they applied doing all these things with. Clintons, Bidens, the IRS. We didn't even talk about Hunter Biden at this point. So I think you can see the frustration and the difference the way this has been handled. Another thing that's in the news uh, that I'm very concerned about, and this comes uh, from foxbusiness.com. I saw this, that the National Energy Assistance Directors Association, I'm sure everybody's very... Very cognizant of that organization. Um, But they said that more than 20 million U.S. families, 20 million, are behind in their utility bills. Now, Mark Wolf, who's the director of this organization, believes these numbers are historic. If that's a key indicator about where we're going with the economy, what's happening with energy and energy prices, it is a startling number. Uh, These numbers are just astronomical and they ought to be a key indicator for everybody to wake up that says you know what, we need energy in this country that is affordable, that is readily available and you start to hear these stories now about having to do these brownouts in 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 California and the other problems yeah it's great, you all go green and woke and you all say that uh, you know the green new deal is awesome but then there's the reality that sets in about having electricity and being able to fuel your car and be able to operate in an economy. We're going to have to do a little bit better than Fred Flintstone was doing. But you know what? At some point, I do think that these radical environmentalists are going to have to come to grips with the idea that, you know what? Nuclear energy is actually the cleanest energy that we know of. And yet we aren't building new nuclear power plants. Because those policies are shutting those types of things down. So, but again, a stunning number. The other thing I wanted to mention, and I got a long list today, but the New York City Police Department, they're searching for a suspect who robbed $250 from a man in a wheelchair while riding a Staten Island bus earlier this month. And I got to tell you, every single day, it seems like almost every hour we hear and see these stories. Now, crime happens in America. But what doesn't happen is the priority is not given to the victims. So suddenly, Joe Biden and the Democrats, I think having seen poll numbers and focus groups, are starting to realize that, hey, guess what? We got to be tough on crime. And yet that message does not ring true when you have an open and porous border, when you have the head of the Border Patrol saying, look, there are no consequences for coming here illegally. And then trying to go up to Pennsylvania and say, oh, hey, we're going to get tough on crime and you know, we, we want to make sure that we're pro-funding. Well, that's not what Kamala Harris was doing two years ago when she was raising money to bail people out of jail as quickly as possible. When you had so many Democrats working to defund police departments, when New York City got rid of its undercover uh, police officers, when they stripped out a billion dollars in their funding, guess what? Then you have these guys in a wheelchair being stolen, you know, having been robbed for $250 and it's just sick and it's disgusting and it's avoidable and it's a huge contrast to where we've been. You know, I love New York city. I come here to work uh, with Fox and uh, I have loved the city. My wife and I have come, my kids uh, brought my kids along Not anymore, not right now, because it's too dangerous. It's filthy, it's disgusting, and it doesn't need to be that way. The city is great, it's wonderful, it's a great place to visit and have fun and go see a show. But now, it doesn't matter what time of day, you try to go around, and it's just different. It's just very different. All right, last thing on the news that I wanted to mention is they're still working in Washington, D.C. You know what, Mayor Bowser there is still trying to figure out what to deal with COVID-19 vaccine policy. You know, she's been rebuked by a judge, but they were trying to implement a policy where students over the age of 12 um, who've received a coronavirus vaccine, they needed to demonstrate that they had that vaccine in order to participate in school. Well, the problem is, in some categories, nearly 50% of the students have not gotten that vaccine. And so they said there's going to be no remote learning. School is starting. They don't have the vaccine. And now Washington, D.C. has put themselves in their own box. Again, the suppression on kids and learning, especially now at this time with COVID, I just think they have their priorities and their policies totally, totally wrong. So lots happening in the news, even though... You know, we're just coming out of Labor Day, and uh, everybody's getting focused, but getting back to school is a big part of it. All right, time to bring on the stupid, because you know what? There's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. All right, I got two uh, here, two for your consideration. One is Euphoria star Sydney Sweeney. She was excited. She shared this whole thing, I guess, online. I'm not I'm not really a fan. fan. I've never really seen her out there, but... Uh, she was a little shocked because her uh, mother had a surprise hoedown for her 60th birthday. But when the pictures got out of what was going on at this, they were totally slammed. Now, the big gaffe that the mom made, evidently, was that she, they were wearing like a MAGA hats that said, Make 60 Great Again. Um, and here's Sweeney, Sydney Sweeney had to come back and say, "Come on, you guys! Quote, you guys, this is wild. An innocent celebration for my mom's milestone 60th birthday has turned into an absurd political statement." End quote. Yeah, welcome to the real world, uh, where this is going on, where those on the woke left cannot get so triggered by somebody who might have a MAGA hat or a reference to that. My goodness, the party that tries to advocate and says they're the most tolerant, ends up being the least tolerant. And uh, this 24-year-old actress, I think, is uh, getting a, a, a quick lesson in how that turns. For her mom's just having her 60th birthday. So to Sydney Sweeney's mom, happy, happy birthday. All right, the second one, the White House won't say if President Biden regrets taking nearly $1 million over three years from the University of Pennsylvania. Now, the president... Uh, was hired by the University of Pennsylvania for a gig that involved no teaching, no courses, um, and had to show up to about a dozen uh, different uh, events. A million dollars. And now you're wondering why the cost of tuition is so high. You want to give out literally hundreds of billions of dollars in loan forgiveness... But the president's over at the University of Pennsylvania taking a million dollars and putting it in his own pocket. Now, he's not doing that now as president. He was a private citizen at the time. But I don't know. I I think the hypocrisy there uh, is pretty self-evident. And that's bringing on the stupid. Time to phone up uh, Jared Kushner. i I honored that I would get him on the phone and... uh, and uh, I hope he answers the phone. But I first met Jared when he was there working in the White House, and I want to ask him, talk to him about that. So let's dial up uh, Jared Kushner. Hello, this is Jared. Hey, Jared, Jason Chaffetz, thanks so much for joining me on the Jason in the House podcast. I do appreciate it.
0: Uh, thanks for having me, Jason. Great to be with you.
1: Oh, no. Hey, listen, congratulations on your book. This, uh, this breaking history book is like breaking Amazon because... You, you, it's like sold out. I you never see a book and like sold out at Amazon. And, um, but congratulations to you. I I've started reading it. I've started reading it, but I haven't gotten very far.
0: Got it. Well, we, we, we were very surprised. Like, I guess we thought we'd ship more than we needed to Amazon, but then we, we got a notice over the weekend that they, uh, that they sold out. So, uh, Harper did a great job getting them more copies quickly. So it's, it's back in, in stock and available, but, uh, but, but very, very, uh, surprised and, and and pleased by the overwhelming response and that so many people have been buying it and reading it and been getting uh, tremendous feedback from it. So it's been really special for me.
1: Well, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm a huge fan. I, I When I was in Congress, uh, somehow made connection with you. And the first time I met you, I, I came over there and we met in your office. And I'm sure you don't remember this because, you know, things are going a million remember miles. It. <laughs> well, they're going a million miles an hour. And there was one point in the conversation, we were just a few minutes into it, and I said, can I make a suggestion? And you had the best reaction, and, and you won't remember this, but I do. You stood up and you closed the door and you said, listen, I came here to get stuff done. I didn't, I'm not here to have some ceremonial job. I want to actually do a lot of things. And just your attitude, your approach, your, you know, roll up your shirt sleeves. Hey, let's get things done. Um, I I loved it.
0: Uh, Thank you. Well, we we were very appreciative of you. Unfortunately, we only worked together for a short time, but I remember, uh, you know, you came in, you were on the oversight at the time and, you know, they were started to scream at us for all kinds of things, which <laughs> at first we thought were serious things. We later learned that it was just noise, but, uh, but you came in, you were very constructive and you gave us some good advice. And, you know, part of what I write about in the book is how I came in, obviously with that attitude as a private sector guy, I wanted to get things done, but uh, without Washington experience. So having the ability to interact with people like yourself and others who had been in Washington before who also had a, a can-do results-oriented attitude was incredibly helpful in my learning curve towards uh, toward, towards getting things done.
1: Well, the noise and the distractions that must have been around you, I mean, the media almost on a moment-by-moment basis was throwing you know misdirection and accusations where you just got to scratch your head saying, where do they come up with this stuff? Uh, and, <laughs> And all the noise that is Congress. How did how did you kind of where did you start and where did you end up uh, in understanding how the the morass the, the 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 problem that is D.C. and how it works?
0: Right. So so it's much different, much much different than what I expected going in, and and that's actually one of the reasons why I wrote the book was because people spend so much time either being angry about Washington, rooting for people in Washington, obsessing with Washington. You know, politics is almost like like sports, where everyone has a, a sense of how things could go better if only they do this or that. Right. But Washington's much different than people think. And I wrote this book to try to give people a, a real insight into what it was like to be in the room with Congress and the White House, how things got done, how things didn't get done, And I felt like that was just a really important lesson that I learned. So, uh, again, very, very frustrating at first to see just that it's a different language, a different world. But as as I learned over the years, it actually is a place where you can get a tremendous amount of things done. And, you know, people obsessed over the Trump presidency and a lot of the coverage was on the investigations or the controversy of the minute. But one thing that's undeniable is that, President Trump got a lot of things done, whether it was peace deals in the Middle East, whether it was the biggest trade deal in history or the second biggest trade deal in history with China, which again, people tried not to cover, whether it was bipartisan achievements like criminal justice reform or even operation warp speed. And I wanted people to see how those things got done and to focus on, you know, the different maneuvers, how they almost didn't happen. Uh, but, but I think it's a very interesting kind of behind the curtain look into not only what happened to the trump administration but also into how washington actually works
1: yeah i think one of the reasons uh, donald trump triggered so many people is that he was highly effective that he'd be willing to meet with anybody he did know how to go get a deal done and was very willing to to bend over backwards and and do something that gosh quite frankly most people over there uh, in 1600 pennsylvania avenue weren't willing to do and that is call and engage and pick up the phone and invite people in. And it was very disarming, but it was also so different that it really threw people for a loop and uh, they didn't know what to do with it.
0: Right. Well, I I always thought that Trump was a pragmatist, right? He's been on all sides of the political spectrum, but he's also lived a, a lot of different chapters in his life. He knows a lot of people. He's seen a lot of things. And one thing that was very surprising to me about his critics is that, they would always prefer to go on TV and virtue signal and criticize when he was always willing to meet with them. And you do have several examples, and I write about it in the book, about how people who were very against uh, President Trump would come in and go meet with him. They would get pillared by the media for for crossing this this line of trying to get things done. And I give the example of Kim Kardashian and Van Jones, and I detail those interactions and, and the grief that they both took for coming in. But ultimately, they got things done. And I think that you know, Trump is somebody who, if you make a better argument, he'll change his, his point of view. And I think that that flexibility is a strength, not a weakness. And you know, politicians are different than businessmen in the sense that for a businessman, the, the greater the stake of what you want to try to accomplish, the more risk, calibrated risk you're willing to take. But for politicians, the the higher you get and the more power you have, the more risk averse they usually become because if power is the end goal, then risking that power is something they don't want to do. And so uh, Trump played uh, much looser than most politicians do and took on a lot more challenges at one time. And, and that's why he got things done. But he really increased the metabolism of Washington. And that's why this book is such a fast-paced read, because it's going through the investigations, the action, the, you know, the dealings with Congress, with foreign leaders, and really trying to show people what it's like to be in the throes of what's probably the highest pressure job uh, in the world.
1: Explain to me how that day would work. I mean, because I remember talking to Reince Priebus who at the time was the, uh, the chief of staff and it was nearly midnight. And I said, boy, you, you got to go. And he said, yeah, I got to get to bed. And I said, what time's the boss going to be calling you? And he said, I'll start getting texts or, you know, I'll get messages or calls around 4 a.m. And, You know, Donald Trump is uh, known for not being much of a a long sleeper, but explain the day and how it would progress, because he did like to get after things early.
0: Yeah, so my general rule was that I had to be in the office at my desk, uh, read through on all the news of the day. Uh, through the through the major papers and also my intelligence briefing by 7:30 a.m. and so that meant often I'd leave before my kids got up, which which you know was something that, that obviously I'm enjoying doing now that I'm not enjoying right. That is the ability to <laughs> spend time with them in the morning. And then you probably had call it two or three hours of meetings internally planning through days or long term policies. And then when Trump would get down to the office, he'd be working the phones. I mean, I would see his call logs. He would probably you know have you know 10 20 calls uh, sometimes by, by, by 10 o'clock and he'd speak to members of Congress and, and, uh, and, and different cabinet secretaries and always just figuring out, you know, kind of why things weren't getting done. Some of it was reactive in terms of if there was something people were complaining about, you know, jumping people on it to get things done, but then also saying, Hey, where are we with this? Where are we with that? Are we making progress on these different, you know, objectives? And then, uh, from about 11 till maybe seven or eight, you know, we'd just be, in the office, dealing with the different meetings or public events, some days different crews would be traveling. Um, but I think the trick to success uh, with him and, and probably with any president is just to have depth to the organization where you have the ability to delegate. I think Ryan's initially didn't have uh, the best people around him. And I think that that weighed on him a lot because he had to deal with so many things himself instead of having the ability to pass things off to different people. But uh, I write in the book about the four different chiefs of staff that I, I served with and the differences in all their uh, personalities. And then ultimately how my understanding of that job evolved and how uh, different ones adapted to President Trump better, but also adapted to the building better. And I don't you know go into specifically like this was good or this one was bad, but I just give the different interactions that I have with them. And the different directions they had with the president and others in the White House, hoping that it allows readers to get a feel for themselves as to what that job is like and, and what it takes to be successful at that job, which is one of the most powerful jobs in the world.
1: Oh, no, it certainly is. And and certainly your your job was and your proximity. I mean, because he leaned on you for not only I mean, I can't think of anything he didn't lean on you for, was there?
0: uh no look I, I think that i try to go into the book to explain my role and i think my role is an unusual role and i think uh, donald trump is also an unusual president right he was a, a private sector guy he was a results-oriented guy he was a washington outsider he didn't always follow the rules of washington and you know he didn't go to their parties or talk the way they wanted him to talk or follow all the procedures they wanted but he wanted to get things done and so i, I write about some jobs like middle east peace how Uh, I kind of got that job. I found out he was talking to the New York Times and said, oh, Jared's going to come to Washington and work on Middle East peace. And I said, oh, I I didn't know that. (laughs) And I write about how I found out. It's a pretty funny story. But then there's also uh, experiences in there where after two years, uh, the wall wasn't getting built. Uh, Donald Trump decided to shut down the government. He calls me into his office. I'd just gotten done the criminal justice reform, which is something that, that almost died about 100 times. And I write extensively about how that happened to show people what it's like to get things done in Washington. And I was celebrating. I was so proud of the achievement. And I get called into the office three hours later and he says, congratulations, you're in charge of immigration and building the wall. Nobody's gotten it done the last two years. Bannon didn't get it done. John Kelly didn't get it done. You're in charge. Figure out how to get it done. And so I write about how I was able to work with great people like Mark Morgan, Chad Wolf, Stephen Miller, uh, Pat Cipollone. Uh, Chad Mizell, uh, Pat Philbin, we, we figured out how to find the money. Uh, John Rader did a great job, uh, and then really, you know, got a team together and figured out how to get it done. And by the time we left, we built I think over 470 miles of wall. Because of the success of it, uh, the migratory chatter patterns were starting to change, and so we we commissioned more wall, which unfortunately now is just sitting there, uh, wow. you know, not being built. Uh, but when President Trump left office, uh, the number of illegal uh, crossings at the southern border were the lowest in history. And so I write about, again, some jobs I didn't ask for. I, I wasn't traditionally qualified for. But when President Trump gave me uh, you know, a job to take on, I write about how at first I would evaluate why it didn't get done before. I try to come up with a plan, build a team and then uh, work very hard to implement. And then, you know, change plans as facts changed
1: as well. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Jared Kushner,
2: That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services.
1: You know, one of the great things that um, uh, one of the great opportunities that was out there that didn't happen uh, was this debate that he was supposed to have with Joe Biden about foreign policy. Because I think one of the greatest accomplishments that President Trump had was in foreign policy. Tell us about that, because all of a sudden, you know, the complexities of domestic politics is one thing. But the foreign politics, I mean, what the president was able to achieve with your help and assistance and, you know, Robert O'Brien and some other key people along the way was truly remarkable uh, in the Middle East and and above and beyond that. I mean it really was a great accomplishment, but I don't think we had a proper debate in this country um, you know going into the presidential election on that topic because it was such a strength for Donald Trump.
0: Yeah, the media tried to avoid talking about foreign policy with everything they could because they knew that Joe Biden's track record on it was awful. Uh-huh. And by the way, the the current results are awful, which we can talk about in a bit uh, with a war in Ukraine and, and uh, with regards to China's aggression and uh, it's, it's really a disaster. But uh, but I think that with Trump, he's probably the most successful part foreign, foreign policy president we've had um, in, in over 50 years. And, you know, voters i saw in the polls don't appreciate uh, foreign policy as a genre but the impacts of foreign policy uh, are tremendous on Americans and it really kind of manifests itself in two ways number one is safety right so if, right. if you don't have a good strong foreign policy we had you know 911 we were attacked here on the home front because of you know bad management of, of threats and risk overseas um, and then also you have it in trade deals where uh, where if you make bad trade deals, a lot of the, the middle class uh, gets hollowed out. We saw uh, the, the China being allowed to join WTO and, and the NAFTA trade deal, which basically hollowed out a lot of uh, working-class towns in America with factories moving overseas. And I think that those two debates are ones that, uh, that, that quite frankly, those are two issues the voters elected Trump on, right? They, they were tired of sending their sons and daughters into these endless wars, Uh, which President Trump vowed to stop, and they hated seeing our our jobs and our auto plants continuing to be sent overseas. And Trump really reversed that. And his rebuke was not a rebuke of the Democrats. It was a rebuke of the entire foreign policy establishment um, in our government, which is really the career political class that have gone through the revolving door of being in government, going to the private sector or the media, and then going back to government. But President Trump's foreign foreign policy was a, a major departure from the conventional thinking. And it, it encountered a lot of resistance. But if, if you're interested in foreign policy, I go through a lot of it in my book, how President Trump dealt with foreign leaders, how he built relationships. And that's how not only did we avoid new wars, he's the first president in uh, in decades to not have any uh, new foreign wars. He also ended wars and made peace deals and figured out how to reduce our troop presences. You know, there's a lot of, uh, uh, hyperventilation about the fact that he was, quote, alienating our allies. But what he was basically saying with Europe is, wait, so you're not paying your share in NATO. We're overpaying in NATO. NATO is supposed to be threatening, uh, protecting you from the threat of Russia. You're now signing big gas contracts and not only sending tens of billions of dollars to Russia, but it's also giving you dependency on Russia. So if they ever have a conflict, they can manipulate you with, with, with gas and with natural resources. And then in addition to that, I should do this all for the privilege of losing money to you on trade every year. Right. And people thought that he was violating some religious, uh, sacri- <laughs> some religious, you know, right. vow by doing it. And so it drove people crazy, but his foreign policy, I thought was, was spectacular. Uh, and he had a, by the end, he had an amazing team in Robert O'Brien, secretary Pompeo, a lot of the great ambassadors, uh, trade ambassador Lighthizer, uh, who who really helped him implement it in a very very strong way?
1: I think President Trump added a, a clarity and a realism to it that you're right. I think the Washington establ- establishment on both sides was just unwilling to 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 take on um, and, and to be able to. Offer that clarity, not only domestically, but to these world leaders. And it had an amazing effect on on how things happen. Give us just a glimpse, if you could. And I know you write about it more in depth in the book. But to have uh, flights, it's more than just symbolic, uh, to have flights out of Israel into these Middle Eastern countries. I mean, nobody ever thought they'd see that.
0: You know, the, the people who mention that to me more than anything are people who are above 60 because they lived through times where they saw a lot of wars in the region and they just never thought that these breakthroughs would occur and maybe it was kind of my my, my youth or maybe it was my lack of uh, of of contextualization mm-hmm. uh, originally of, of the problem but i just kind of looked at it and said this whole situation is illogical and again i joke uh, that i i was able to achieve the breakthroughs for the peace deals on plan C only because we went through the alphabet three times and everything we tried failed. Um, And again, I write about a lot of those attempts and what we learned from everything that didn't work that led us ultimately to find the breakthrough. But that's a major thing. And if you think about the Arab-Israeli conflict, a lot of it comes from the vestiges of uh, World War II, where you had Nasser uh, led the Arabs at a time where there was still great anti-Semitism against the establishment of the state of Israel. And then In that surprising defeat, uh, a lot of the Arab countries then basically made Israel the scapegoat and kicked uh, Jews out of their capitals in in all the different countries from, you know, cities like Baghdad and Cairo, where they lived peacefully with Muslims for thousands of years. And so that really created the polarization uh, that we're still living with today. And then for, you know, for the last 50 plus years, you basically had Arab leaders uh, using Israel as a way to divert from a lot of their shortcomings at home. And so that was kind of the uh, the environment that we were working against. And, and, you know, not only did people think it wasn't possible, people weren't even trying to make these breakthroughs because, again, the established thinking in Washington was described by John Kerry before he left office in 2016, where he said, there will never be peace between Israel and the Arab countries until you have peace with Israel and the Palestinians. And uh, again, I thought that that was true initially, but the more, I went through and started speaking to people and trying to see things for how they were. I thought that that made absolutely no sense. And we we, we tried differently and we were able to expose the Palestinian issue to be kind of the, the farce that it was. And by doing that, we were able to create a breakthrough that nobody thought was possible. And again, president Trump took a very untraditional approach to foreign policy and by understanding American power, by not allowing our allies to cherry pick issues, by slaughtering a lot of sacred cows, whether it was moving the embassy to Jerusalem or pulling out of the Iran deal. And I try to take readers into the situation room and into the different uh, discussions about these uh, decisions that were taken that were very controversial. People were telling him from the Secretary of Defense and the CIA and the intelligence community that if he did this thing, we'd have World War III and the world would explode. And President Trump very carefully deliberated those things and he, he made the decisions. And then the next morning, the sun rose and the next evening, the sun set. And and uh, like moved on. he mitigated whatever the potential risks were, as a businessman would do. And so, it just—it's—it's it, it's a very important for America to have a strong foreign policy because that's what keeps us safe and gives us the ability to prosper as an economy, which leads to opportunity for, for all Americans to to rise up the ladder of opportunity.
1: Well, again, the, the success that uh, the president had with you uh, there at his side, as you, you write about Breaking History, it's just, it really is, the more I, I hear you talk about it, the, I think the title of the book probably really is the one that's right. Because how many presidents did we hear talk about, hey, we're going to put the uh, our, our embassy in, in Jerusalem, and then to actually just go ahead and do it? And you're right. The world didn't fall apart. In fact, I would argue it's probably safer and more secure now than than it has been. And because I think they had a degree of respect that when Donald Trump said something, he was actually going to do it. And he had the uh, the ability to do it. And it wasn't just political rhetoric. It was something that he actually believed in in his heart.
0: And he was unpredictable. You know, the same thing that drives his enemies crazy about him is also what drew drove our competitors crazy. Right. You think about Iran or China they were way less provocative with Donald Trump because they never knew what his lines were. And that was a strategic advantage that he created, which allowed him to move pieces around the chessboard that leaders haven't been able to do for 50 years. And keep in mind, too, you know, when, when Kissinger uh, and Nixon opened China, um, the global economy was not as developed as it is today. And so uh, economy as part of the geopolitical landscape is a much more heightened tool than it was. And President Trump, as a businessman, surrounded himself with businessmen. Uh, there was just a study that showed that, I, an article I read somewhere that said that Trump's administration had an average of 14 years of private sector experience, whereas I think Biden's White House has uh, an average of two and a half years. And I think the result showed, right? He had uh, record low unemployment, wages were rising, record low on inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it just, you know, the economy was booming and, and we were making trade deals, and then you know Biden comes in, and you have you know war in Ukraine that that was provoked. Uh, China is being very aggressive in Taiwan, which poses a big threat to you know the current global uh, equilibrium right now. And in addition to that, you have inflation off the charts. And President Trump made us energy independent with his with his with his with his policies, and now we're basically begging Iran and Venezuela to give us more oil when, you know, he canceled the Keystone Pipeline and we could be getting it from, from Canada. So, you know, the, the, the whole thing is just very illogical. Um, but again, I think President Trump brought a lot of common sense to Washington. And, and I really hope that this book takes readers inside those policies and gives them the ability to see, again, he wasn't right every time. I, I think I'm very honest about some of my biases and some of the mistakes that I made. But I really try to give people insight into, what happened so they can form their own opinions as to which parts were good and which parts were bad, and hopefully have a better lens through which to understand what's actually happening in Washington, D.C.
1: Well, I got to tell you, again, from the first moment I met you, the, the attitude and the approach that, hey, we're going to roll up our shirt sleeves and and get after it and get it done, I really do think is a major contributor to the triggering that the word MAGA or any one of those hats has out there, because I think they realize and recognize how incredibly successful uh, President Trump was on policy and his ability to cut through the garbage that 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 is Washington, D.C. within that, that beltway bubble. Um, before I get to f- just a couple of last questions, uh, it's a little personal questions. Um, what, what was your biggest surprise when you walked away and you walked out of that White House and it was the last day and you look back, you had achieved so much. But What really surprised you at the end that maybe you didn't recognize was going to happen at the beginning?
0: Uh, I think just in terms of personal feeling, I I, I was surprised at how relieved I felt leaving. Uh, You know, I saw some people leave and and miss it. I saw some people leave and go on and and really be out of their service and and move on. Uh, I was actually really surprised at how much I felt like it was a massive boulder Off my back, in the sense that, you know, in Washington, the best work you do is often preventing a really big problem from becoming uh, a fatal problem. And I tell a lot of stories about things we did to to pull off miracles during the COVID threats and, you know, during other areas where you're playing, you know, you're playing poker with China or Iran or, you know, even Mexico on trade deals or or issues of immigration. And the fact that, you know, we left and I, I didn't feel like I wasted too much time. I tell a story. About getting visited by uh, Prime Minister Mulroney, who was the former Prime Minister of Canada, who said that he served, I think it was for nine years as Prime Minister, and he's like, "Look, I'm only known really for two things." And you know, when when your time expires, you're not going to look back and say, "Hey, what was the salacious story of the day?" or "What was the bad, you know, name that a colleague called you?" People are going to look back and say, "What did you do?" And you know, I felt like I really spent those four years not leaving anything on the table, not having any regrets that I didn't spend every minute possible fighting forward. And, and it was a very hard environment. Again, I'm, I'm very honest about, you know, what it's like being accused of treason and including with Russia and having to go right. through special counsel investigation and, you know, congressional investigations and then, you know, working through impeachments and, and media uh, slimes. But uh, but I think that what I also show is that you know we kept our head down, we got things done and I was just very proud of my accomplishment. Uh, again, I, 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 you know, going to Washington was was not a pathway I ever thought would happen in my life. But you know, even today, I, I get calls, you know, every week from people who are coming out of prison uh, because of the the programs that we put in place now with job training, and who are excited to have a second chance at life. And I get pictures sent to me of people who are just very grateful, and and that just means the world to me because these are real lives that we impacted. Or I get pictures from the Middle East of people who. You know, visit Bahrain and, and see the Torah that I dedicated in honor of uh, King Hamad for the work that he did to bring Israel and the Arab world closer together. So you just have so much positivity that continues to happen because of the great policy achievements of President Trump and his administration that I was able to play a role in and I just feel just incredibly uh, touched that I was able to have that opportunity to make a difference.
1: Well, I got to tell you, the sacrifice that you and Ivanka and and your kids go through in serving like that—you uh, really, um, there are a lot of people out there that do appreciate and thank you for for the tenacity and the just the tenacious nonstop effort because the the multiple tasks that were. On your plate, I mean, uh, a lot of people have made a career out of just trying to tackle one of those issues. And and just the (laughs) array of things you've talked over the last 20, 25 minutes is it really is mind boggling that the book is called Breaking History. um, And, uh, Jared, I really do appreciate you sharing those thoughts and perspectives. The book's out now. Hopefully, Amazon doesn't run out of them anymore. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back right after this before i go i gotta ask you a few questions a few rapid questions i hope that's okay
0: go ahead all right and by the way we have we we, we got them plenty more books Our harper promised me they're gonna have as many books <laughs> as people want to buy so uh we have that it's also done very well on audible as well so a lot of people have been uh listening to it on audible and, and sending me nice notes as well so it, it's uh, so so we have enough books
1: all right all right good all right few few rapid questions we'll do less than we normally do but uh just a little bit about you growing up to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, first concert you attended?
0: Uh, I think it was probably either Billy Joel or Dave Matthews.
1: Nice. Very good. What was your first job that you had as a little kid? You're growing up, but what's your first job, kind of away from maybe mom, dad, that you had to go do as a as a young man?
0: So uh, I, I worked as a waiter in camp a little bit, but, my, uh, but after I, I turned, I think it was maybe 12, my father stopped with camp and told me I had to get a real job. So he put me on one of those construction sites. And uh, and that was a, quite a quite a unique experience, you know, really getting to work with the carpenters and the plumbers and sweeping homes every day uh, and just seeing what, what, a, what a real day's work is like.
1: Nah, that's good. Uh, if you could meet one person, you said, hey, Ivanka, you know what? Uh, we got a special guest coming over for dinner tonight. Anybody, dead or alive, it's a person in history. Who would you want to have come over and break bread with?
0: Oh, that's that's a good one. Well, well, the cool thing is, is we've been able to meet so many. Of yes, people. you have. Your uh, list is you know, probably. Yes. <laughs> you, know, you know, one person I'd, I'd be very interested to spend time with is is uh, Shimon Perez. I, I read his book and I, I really loved it. And uh, and that was someone who I think, uh, again, did a lot of things behind the scenes to really safeguard the state of Israel uh, and did a tremendous job. So that that's somebody I've been intrigued by.
1: That's interesting because, you know what, of all the the kind of foreign policy leaders, I think I have probably spent more time with him back in the day than just about any of the others. And at some point, I'll tell you that story and share with you. It's really, really kind of interesting and what an honor to do it before he he had passed away. Uh, Big question for me that is just very personal. Do you like pineapple on pizza, yes or no?
0: No, not my thing.
1: Yeah, good. You shouldn't put wet fruit on a pizza. I think that's... uh, that's an important thing. Uh, two more questions. Best advice you ever got?
0: Uh, show up on time. I think it's, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I write about it in the book, how, how my father uh, was telling me before a um, uh, an interview that I had, he says, what time are you going to leave? I said, I'll leave at eight o'clock. And he says, well, what if there's traffic? I said, well, I've, I've done this drive a hundred times. There's never traffic. And, and he says, well, what if there's an accident? I so I can't have planned for that. He says, well, the only excuse for ever being late is that you didn't leave early enough. So, you know, take control of your own of your own destiny and, and really do if something's important, you have to put the onus on you to figure out how to get it done versus uh, versus finding, you know, excuses that that, that, that you can blame
1: others for. All right. Well, I had one more question, but you know what? We're going to save that for another day because you've been very generous with your time. And I don't want to be late getting out of this talk and this conversation. So, um, Jared Kushner, the book is breaking history. It's breaking records. And if you really want to see how it actually works behind the scenes, I can think of no better person and no better book than breaking history. Because, boy, the things you were able to accomplish in a short amount of time Truly stunning. I don't know that we've ever seen uh, so much productivity come out of uh, it just rapid fire. And so, hats off to you. Thank you for your service to the country and uh, congratulations on this book.
0: Thank you. Well, thank you for your kind words and thank you for your partnership and, and mentorship.
1: Very good, Jared Kushner. Thank you. Well, I can't thank Jared Kushner enough for his time and his insight. I have started to read his book. It is absolutely fascinating, and uh, I, I, I really, if you want to read a bit about history, I think you're going to find right out of the shoots. This is not your typical uh, just political book. Um, it, it's it really is something special. Um, and it's called Jared Kushner's It's Breaking History, is the, the way you find it. Uh, but I thank him for for joining us, and uh, as we do with all the podcasts. I also, as we kind of sign off here, I want to uh, say a congratulations. It's a little bit tardy, but uh, the Little League World Series, I think, is one of the great sporting events. And uh, it's heading back to Hawaii. Hawaii is the, has won the, the Little League World Series. Uh, the team from Honolulu defeated the international champion, Caracau, uh, which is surprising. I didn't know they were so into baseball, but uh, they beat them 13 to three in uh, South Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Congratulations to Hawaii. Well done. All right. So thanks for joining us here on the Jason and the House podcast. I hope you can rate it, subscribe to it. Uh, go check out. Uh, more podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. You're going to find a lot of other contributors and people like Trey Gowdy and Ben Dominich and Will Kane. And there's a lot of good. Shannon Bream's got one up there. A uh, lot of good podcasts that I'm sure you're going to want to look at. But again, like it, rate it, review it. We'll be back with more next week. I'm Jason Chaffetz. This has been Jason in the house.